Olivia here. I want to tell you about a new podcast from Axios called One Big Thing. It's hosted by Nyla Budu and features interviews with leaders you know or need to know in business, politics, and culture. Each week, you'll hear one big conversation on the trends shaping our world from people like Surgeon General Vivek Murthy, technology reporter Ina Freed, and chef and humanitarian Jose Andres. So go ahead, listen to One Big Thing on your favorite podcast app. New episodes drop every Thursday. Hello, and welcome to BioEats World from A16Z. I'm Olivia. And I'm Chris. Today we have a special episode previously recorded live from A16Z BioHealth's first summit. You'll hear Mark Andreessen, founder of A16Z, in conversation with Vijay Pandey, founding partner of A16Z BioHealth. This keynote was recorded right after Mark published his most recent piece, Why AI Will Save the World, which we'll also put in the show notes. The premise of Mark's article is just that. AI has the potential to save the world. But look, I wouldn't say save the world in like a utopian way, but I'd say like save the world in a very practical way, which goes back to this idea of intelligence makes everything better, right? And so how can you harness intelligence basically to make everything better? Regulators, entrepreneurs, consumers, and everyone else now has the opportunity to shape a future that we want to live in. When you have a technology that's empowering like AI is, right, then you're putting, a, you're putting, you're putting AI in everybody's hands and then everybody has the ability to do with it whatever they want. And, it, you know, that's the most equalizing thing I can possibly imagine. So join Mark and Vijay as they talk about why AI will save the world and what needs to happen first. You're listening to BioEats World from A16Z. So how would you define AI? Yeah, so you want to start actually with the definition of intelligence, which is a, a really interesting topic. And sometimes it becomes a very uh, kind of inflammatory topic. But there is a very kind of serious foundation to the idea of an intelligence. And it actually is a single factor you know, measured, measured by a Q. But what's so striking about it is that single factor of what they call fluid, the technical definition is fluid intelligence, which they sort of loosely described as the ability to rapidly assimilate and synthesize information uh, and solve problems. Um, it, it turns out it basically correlates with essentially every important marker of basically human quality of life. So it's everything from educational attainment, job success. Actually, people who are smarter actually turns out are like less, they're less bigoted. Um, they're less prone to violence. The general principle you can derive from that basically is that intelligence makes everything better, right? Of course, smart people are not like morally better necessarily, and there's plenty of smart people who are not very nice. So it's not a, you know, it's not a panacea for everything. But if you're, if you're trying to basically improve human welfare, right, it, like uh, intelligence is one of the key things that you, that you want to look at. One of the original ideas of the invention of the computer of the electronic, you know, calculating machine was basically trying to make it reason and think like like a human. Um, and there was this, you know, 80-year research project that started with neural networks in literally 1943 um, that has been running for the last 80 years to try to make this happen. Um, and, and of course, it's literally what you're trying to do is you're trying to actually make a computer intelligent in the way that a human being is. You know, there was, in retrospect, very impressive technical progress along the way, but, you know, there, there were not a lot of very profound kind of breakthroughs in actually getting to human style reasoning in computers. And then all of a sudden, you know, basically we've reached this tipping point where it's, it's actually now, uh, it's now happening. And so, so I want to go through the human definition of intelligence. It's like, okay, if we actually now have machine intelligence, what does that, what does that actually mean? And I think the first order conclusion is, you know, as I said in the paper, literally it's okay. Machine intelligence working at scale is, is an opportunity to make many, many things in human life actually better. Part of what I think was, a, for me, especially appealing about the piece that um, it's a bold claim to say it's going it's to save the world. Like, how, how can it save the world? 
So I, 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 I will confess, I, I, made it a, I made it a little bit religious. Um, okay. I, I, I threw the harpoon a little bit hard. I did it for a very specific reason, which is I think the anti-AI movement has become very religious uh, and not in a good way. Um, and so I, I figured if you're going to fight a religion, you at least need to have a little bit of religious pixie dust on it. Yeah. I may be amped up a little bit for that reason. But look, I wouldn't say save the world in like, in like, a, uto- in like a utopian way, but I'd say like save the world in a very practical way, which goes back to this idea of intelligence makes everything better, right? Um, and so how can you harness intelligence basically to make everything better? And then, you know, you, you just immediately start thinking of amazing examples. Well, you even made a stronger point that you said that given the benefits and you enumerated benefits in all these different areas, especially in healthcare and life sciences, that there's a moral obligation. Like, how does that work? Like, how do you think about that? Yeah, so this always, you know, this goes to this question of like cost versus opportunity cost, right? It's a classic asymmetry that comes up in the context of like drug approvals, right? If a drug gets approved um, and it kills a bunch of people, that's damage that you see and, that, and that's horrible. If the drug doesn't get improved and it doesn't save a lot of people and a lot of people die, that's the damage you don't see. We in sort of Western culture, I think, have kind of psyoped ourselves into a really radical, this sort of precautionary principle idea. We've psyoped ourselves into a kind of a corner on that where we're, we're very fixated on the damage we can see and we're very not fixated on the damage we can't see. In spite of all of our first year philosophy courses talking about the trolley car problem. So a lot of this is this thing called the precautionary principle, which I finally looked up. So it was the German Green Party in the 1970s that basically, basically the anti-nuclear party at the time. And, and they basically were like, look, to, to roll out more nuclear energy, you have to basically prove that it can't possibly cause any damage, right? And that basically, that idea basically killed the development of nuclear power, not just in Germany, but in the rest of the world. You know, we're sitting here 50 years later and everybody's like completely worked up about carbon emissions. And we have like the magic silver bullet energy technology for like unlimited clean power, like nuclear power plants, like they literally emit like water, right? Like as their as their as their environment, right? As long as you contain the waste, like they're 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 completely clean and they're they're zero emission. There's this whole thing where like we 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 sort of whammied ourselves into believing that unless you can prove right that there will never be another Three Mile Island, right, or another you know another meltdown or another any sort of damage at all from you can't possibly use it. And then what goes unmeasured is the catastrophic consequences of not having you know <laughs> Richard Nixon. Say what you like about Richard Nixon. Um, he had a plan called Project Independence in 1971. And um, it was to uh, roll out a thousand state-of-the-art new nuclear reactors in the U.S. and cut the U.S. in the 1970s completely over to nuclear power and, and shut off all fossil fuels. And like, and you'll you'll notice we didn't do that, right? Um, and so like, there's this like incredible cautionary warning about this principle of the precautionary principle uh, being you know misapplied and leading to these catastrophic downstream kind of unseen costs. Like current AIs, if you do kind of human equivalent IQ, they score about 130, 135. But like, what if they get to like 150, 160, 170, 180 over the course of the next five or 10 years yeah. and they start to be able to do things like discover novel drug compounds, right? And like, and, and we don't let that happen. The blood on our hands will be profound even if we can't see it. Right. And that's a situation that if we, we prohibit it, we just will never know what could have happened. Yeah, that's right. So why do you think people are going all the way to it's going to kill us? So the panic is kind of in two parts, and I talk about this in the piece. There's this pattern in social reform movements, of which this is one, called it's the Baptists and the bootleggers. And I, it's, it's fully outlined in the piece, so I won't go through it. But basically, there were two groups of people who wanted to ban alcohol in the U.S. in the 1910s and 1920s that led to prohibition. The, the, the quote-unquote Baptists were basically the generally devout religious uh, believers who also believed that alcohol was destroying society, and they strongly believed for moral and social reasons that alcohol needed to be outlawed. And then there were the bootleggers who standed to make an enormous amount of money if that happened, because if you right, ban legal alcohol sales, then the people who sell it illegally will make a fortune. And that was actually the that was actually the origin story of organized crime in the US like that that put unholy alliance. Yeah, it was an unholy alliance. And, and basically, it turns out like that's a standard pattern. And basically, what happens with these reform movements is, is, is they're, they're marketed as basically social reform, right? Uh, selfless social reform on the part of people who care deeply about society. And those people exist. There's actually an argument to be made that actually they, the, the Baptists in the in the prohibition case were actually correct in a lot of ways. Alcohol actually turns out 
like most violent crime is actually highly associated with alcohol. There's something there. But what happens is they, you know, they are, you know, selfless and idealistic. And then there's basically a set of people who are basically venal and self-interested, the bootleggers, and then, and they are cynical and organized, right? Um, and they work behind the scenes and they end up co-opting the movement. And sure enough, the people who push for the banning of alcohol and prohibition were very disappointed, you know, by the results. Like we, we, we did not exactly stop drinking. And so that there's a very similar Baptist bootlegger alliance on the, on the AI front. There's the true believers that AI is variously going to kill everybody or take all the jobs or, you know, cause people, you know. And they truly believe that. Yeah, they truly believe it. And by the way, like, look, the, the, their arguments need to be taken seriously because just because they truly, you know, just because they're true believers doesn't mean they're wrong. Bootleggers here are basically big companies um, that basically want a, want a government protected cartel. They want basically a regulatory barrier um, where to be in the AI business, you need to have fleets of lawyers and policy affairs people and you need to be, you know, paying government officials huge amounts of money and hiring huge numbers of people out of government and, you know, going through all these compliance checklists and all this stuff. And of course, big companies don't, you know, big companies may or may not even be able to innovate at a certain point, but that they can do. Um, and then the goal of that is to basically make sure that there's no startup competition. And in this case, it's actually even worse than that, because the, the, the lobbying effort is not only to protect the big companies against startups, it's also to try to protect them against open source. And there's a big move in DC right now to try to ban AI in open source form, which I, which I'm, I, as cynical as I am, I'm actually shocked by that. Uh, yeah, that's literally free speech at that yeah, point. Yeah, it's literally, you're literally telling people they can't like write code and put it on the internet, which I think is just like totally beyond the pale. But like there are policymakers in DC that are very worked up on this issue right now and they're, they're trying to figure out how to ban open source AI. Well, do you, do you think that the pleading of please regulate us, it was convincing? Well, so, I mean, it's, it's what DC loves to hear. Yes, it's very convincing. <laughs> Every regulator wants to hear, yes, please regulate. I mean, usually regulators try to regulate something, they, you know, they get fought. In this case, they're like being, you know, it's like the wolf is being invited into the, uh, into, you know, into, into the hen house. They're, you know, they're all fired up. Okay, so if we posit that it's not going to kill us all, but maybe there's other things that are bad, right? So let's say it's going to take all our jobs. Isn't that a real concern? Another recurring panic that basically has happened, you know, for actually this one is for like 300 years now, right, is this panic that basically machines replace human labor um, and that when machines replace, which is true, uh, and then when machines replace human labor, there are no new jobs for people to do. Um, and so there's always this fear that, that automation or robotics or machinery, at one point, this was like people were worried about, you know, mechanical looms making wool, you know, this was the Luddites. Uh, this was a reaction to electricity. This is a reaction to the computer. There was there was a big freak out about AI, basically machines, computers taking jobs in the 1940s, 1950s. They freaked out immediately. Um, we've been through two panics like this in the last 20 years. There was a panic in the 2000s that I, it was outsourcing in the 2000s. It was all the jobs are going to go to India and China, and there's not going to be any jobs left in the U.S. And then in 2010s, there was a panic about 10, eight years ago about robots taking all the jobs. That's right. Yeah. Right. You know, that didn't happen. So, so, so it's this recurring thing. And it's, it's fundamentally a misunderstanding of the nature of productivity growth in the economy. The short version basically is when you apply technology to the economy, there is a replacement of human labor, but that's just the first step in a chain of results. Um, because what you've done is you've increased what, what economists call productivity growth. Productivity growth is the ability of, of the economy pr to produce more output with less input, which is literally the economic result of applying technology. When you do that, what you do is you cause prices to fall, right? Because you can now make things more cheaply. When you cause prices to fall, you basically, it's the equivalent of basically giving consumers a raise, right? Because now they have to pay less for the things that they used to buy, that they, that, that they used to buy. Consumers now have additional spending power that they didn't previously have, the equivalent of basically a collective societal raise. And then that spending power is new demand. 
that new demand leads to the creation of new industries, new products, new jobs, expansion of existing industries, right? Growth of demand even in the existing products. Um, and so the result is you come out the other side of that with an economy in which both material welfare is better off, and then you, but also with more jobs and also with jobs at higher wages. And so it's it's this constant process of of, of sort of change, and it is it is a process of change, and people do get freaked out by the change, but it's this process of change that's resulted in basically all boats being lifted over time. And then what people say about AI is it's like, oh, you know, you know, AI is finally the sort of magical special thing that's going to replace all human labor, and there's not going to be anything for people to do. But then you run the thought experiment on that, and you're like, wow, <laughs> that would be even better, um, <laughs> because it, because like a world in which that was true would be a world in which productivity growth in the U.S. was not rising at like 1.5 percent a year or something like that. That would be, but productivity growth would be rising at like 10% or 20% or 50% or 100% a year. And if productivity growth it grew that fast, the consumer cornucopia that comes out of the other side of that would be staggering. Like the, the, the prices for all goods and services would collapse. Consumer spending power would explode. Demand in the economy would explode. Entrepreneurship would explode. Industry growth would explode. You know, standards of living would be like just sky high compared to today. I mean, it would, it would be like the most amazing thing that's ever happened. Do you think that's going to happen? So I think it's it, it's possible because if we're talking about general intelligence here, I think it's possible that happens. Um, there, there is another reason to not be that worried about this issue, which is everything I just described is mostly illegal. What do you mean it's illegal? Uh, it's mostly illegal. So in most of the big industries in the U.S., you cannot just like arbitrarily like apply technology and just like re, 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 you change everything. Yeah. yeah. For example, in the healthcare industry, <laughs> yes, exactly, you, you cannot simply do that. Um, it turns out in the construction industry, you can't simply do that. Um, right? Lawyers, there's, there's nothing about technology that says you can build a house in a place they tell you you can't build a house. Lawyers, yeah, there's no robot lawyer. Like they do not let uh, AI get certified to be lawyers. Nor do I think the lawyers will allow that to happen anytime yeah, soon. Exactly. And so, to the extent you to the extent you're worried about rapid change, like the good news is the lawyers will slow it down. So then, there's a different argument you can make, which is that AI seems to be concentrated in just a few companies seems like the sort of the extreme example of inequality. So it feels like, okay, we're, maybe we're not, either not going to lose our jobs or it doesn't matter, and we're not going to die, but there's going to be this huge shift in inequality. Like, do you, so do you think that's possible? Yeah, so the, the idea there basically, the steel man version of that is there will be you know, one or a small handful of kind of super AIs that will be better at everything, and then whoever owns those super AIs... Assuming, owns, owns everything. Owns everything, right. Yeah. They, sort of, uh, they own everything. And, and you know, this has been a recurring... This has actually been, again, this has been one of these kind of recurring panics. This, this is actually a theory that sort of started very early on with industrialization because you could apply this to basically this, this idea to any machine, right? And so basically if there's a machine that does something, then whoever owns the machine right, is going gonna to make all the money. And, and, and actually th this idea is a core idea of literal Marxism. The whole framework of Marxism is that there's this op inherent opposition between the bosses and, the, and labor, the, the bourgeoisie and the proletariat, and it's based on the idea that uh, because the bosses have capital, um, you know, they therefore have machinery, they own the means of production, they therefore naturally are going to end up with all the money and the workers are going to end up you know, poor. Part of the flaw in the logic is what's called the lump of labor fallacy, which is the employment thing that I, I just talked about, this idea that there's only a fixed amount of labor to do in the world and either humans or machines are going to do it, which is not true because there's, there's an unlimited amount of new work to be done uh, at all times. Um, but the other flaw is, is this central. The other flaw in the logic is this: is this central, the this, this centralization idea, and the, and, the, and the flaw there goes to the nature of the self-interest of the owner of the machine, um, which is the self-interest of the owner of the machine is not to hoard the machine, is to sell it to everybody. The the way that every industrialist in human history has maximized their own self-interest is by making whatever technology it is they have as available to as many people as possible. The classic example of that in the last twenty years is Elon Musk with Tesla, you know, with the amazing magical self-driving 
driving electric car, right, which is like a huge breakthrough. Elon famously published his secret plan, quote unquote, uh, in 2006 on his website, which is an exact refutation of, of the Marxist theory actually turns out in this plan. And it's, it's literally uh, step one of the plan, build a super expensive sports car and sell it to a few rich people. Yep. Uh, right. Step two, build a moderately expensive car and sell it basically to the middle class. Um, and then step three, build a cheap car and sell it to everybody. And, 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 and he was optimizing his own self-interest by doing that. The biggest market on the planet is everybody. And basically what industrialists try to do is they try to drive down the cost of the thing and make sure that everybody can get it because that's how they actually maximize their income. As a result of that plan, that secret plan, Elon Musk became the richest man in the world. Like that, and this is part of like Adam Smith, the invisible hand kind of idea, which is the self-interest of the industrialist, of the owner of the means of production, is actually to blow it out as big as he possibly can, uh, and that means getting it to as many people as possible. And and again, what's amazing about it is this is actually already happening in AI, right? Um, and so, and it's already happening in AI. Like number one, you can get the best AI in the world, and it costs twenty bucks a month, right? Like it's not being hoarded; it's the opposite. But it's actually even crazier than that because you also have Bing from Microsoft and you have Bard from Google that are that are almost as good as GPT. Actually, Bing actually is GPT four with a different with a different uh, rule set, um, and those are actually free. You know, like these companies have their issues, um, but they want the biggest possible market, and, and they're they're already doing that to the extent that they're even making this stuff free. Well, it seems like the history of technology is pretty democratizing. Like um, the Spotify you and I have is the same Spotify everybody has. Like no one has better Spotify. The great social philosopher Andy Warhol said famously said they said that the, the the glory of of American capitalism, uh, you can see it in a can of Coca Cola. It's like you can buy a can of, at the time for a quarter, a little bit more now, but you can buy Coca Cola for a dollar for for a dollar. You can buy Coke for a dollar. I can buy a Coke for a dollar. The guy you know in the street can buy Coke for a dollar. The president of the United States can buy Coke for a dollar. It's the same can of Coke. You cannot buy a ten thousand dollar can of Coke. It's actually fairly amazing. You cannot buy. There is no ten. There's a ten thousand dollar bottle of wine. Yeah. Um, but there's no ten thousand dollar bottle. You know, can of Coke, right? And the Coca Cola company became maximally successful by having that by by having that be the principle. By the way, it's another actually very interesting thing. You cannot spend ten thousand dollars on a phone, right? Like you can only spend like they max out at like ten thousand. There's no ten thousand dollar super phone. There, and there's like, there would be like a very large market for the $10,000 super phone, but Apple makes more money by trying to optimize it into cheaper and cheaper form factors and sell it you know, broader than trying to you know, basically hoard it uh, and only sell it to a few rich people. So inequality is kind of against the self-interest of the- Yeah, and, and, then as a and then as a consequence, right, step, step two of that is when you have a technology that's empowering like AI is, right, then you're putting, a, you're, putting, you're putting AI in everybody's hands and then everybody has the ability to do with it whatever they want. And it, you know, that's the most equalizing thing I can possibly imagine. Okay, we're going down the spectrum of, of disasters and we're starting to get into not that bad, but still pretty bad. So another version is like, it's kind of amazing what you can do now, right? Because you can mimic someone's voice, um, you can mimic their face. So all this possibility that AI could generate email fraud, all, you know, phone fraud, all this fraud at scale. So is this now a tool that, sure, it's a tool to do good, but is a tool to do evil at scale as well? Yeah. Well, let's take it a step further. Like, you know, design me the perfect bank robbery plan, right? Like, design me the perfect terrorist plan. Yeah. We could ask GPT-4 right now. Right, exactly. Yeah. Like, design me a novel pathogen, right? So, like, you have general intelligence can be used for, you know, for, for, very, for very bad things. The fraud stuff you mentioned, like, it's actually happening. There have been cases already of, of fraud, you know, where literally it's like voice synthesis and, you know, it's, your, it's literally your grandson or granddaughter calling you up sobbing, you know, saying, I'm trapped and kidnapped and I need money. And, you know, it just, and they were never in any danger. They had no idea. 
idea it was happening. It was just a, a synthesized voice. Yeah. So, so all these, and this falls in the category of what I described this is my, in my paper. This is the fifth risk, which is basically bad people doing bad things, this general purpose technology. This risk, I think, is real. The previous four I talked about in the paper, I think, are actually not really real. This one is very real. The answer on this one, I believe very strongly, is, is what we've already done, which is, okay, we're gonna, we should, you should use that same technology to prevent and defend against exactly those kinds of uses. Basically, people should not be completely naked and alone on the internet or subject to anybody calling them up on the phone trying to trick them. By the way, there's a lot of fraud in the world today that is committed on people, including older people, that doesn't rely on AI. Um, there's entire categories of this. And so basically, there should be defensive tools, right? And so by, by the time somebody who is subject to this kind of fraud is getting a message, it should already be pre-validated, right? It should be like a spam filter. Much, think about like a much more sophisticated spam filter. It should already pre-validated that like, okay, that's not actually a real person. This is not actually a real claim. Uh, this is not actually a real thing. Banks should be using AI to figure out how to build better you know, security systems. You know, by the way, novel pathogens, uh, biodefense, right? We should be harnessing AI to build like, you know. But, but wouldn't that be like too late? <laughs> you know? Well, it depends when we start, <laughs> right? Or, or, or what about if there was more uh, something like alignment to get in the way of this? Would you be, would you think that's a better solution to have the AI get filtered? Like if someone puts a query prompt like that, it just doesn't get answered. That is a big push. And, and there's a lot of people working on that. You know, the, the challenge with that is just the practical reality of, is this a containable technology? Um, and then this goes back to the fact that the nature of the technology is, is that it's software and that it's code. And this yeah. is another topic of people in DC trying to figure out how to ban open source because one of the fears of people in DC, and, and again, it's like, it's not that these fears are ungrounded. One of the fears is if like, if open source proliferates, then it will be impossible to basically enforce, you know, limitations on, on, on functions. Um, and you can have, you can have AIs that actually are, are, are used to do very bad things. And, and we've seen this with like PGP, right? Yeah. Well, look, encryption, this has been a debate for decades now with encryption, right? Which is like, okay, is encryption good or bad, right? Like, well, encryption is really good. If you're trying to like defend the nation and yourself and your family against criminals and terrorists, and encryption is really bad if like terrorists and like child abusers are using it, right? It's like a real double-edged thing. And there, you know, there there was a point. There was a point when I entered the computer industry in, in, in the early '90s. Actually, um, export of strong encryption was legally banned uh, for this reason. The problem in that case and the problem in this case is, you know, this is we're not dealing with like a physical material like plutonium where we can like actually try to track and control who has it. We're dealing with software and math and code. And the problem with software and math and code is it's, it's just ideas. And it's just, it's very hard to put these things back in the box. And, and this is my counter argument of why it doesn't make any sense to ban open source. It's like literally impossible. It's because there's like unlimited already free educational resources on the internet for learning how to like make AI. By the way, GPT-4 will happily teach you how to code AI. <laughs> it's one of the things it's really good at teaching you how to do. Yeah. Uh, by the way, it's pretty good at doing it itself. And there's, you know, endless courses on YouTube and free books available and, you know, communities of, of people talking about this. And so like, when you're dealing with software and code, like the extremeness of the regime that you would need to put in place to try to restrict people's ability to run, develop, run, and disseminate software and code, you, you want to think about basically what that means. It would mean basically a live government-run monitor function on every computer chip. Right. And it would mean literally like people with like guns coming to like seize your graphics cards, yeah, yeah. like, you know, beyond North Korea, beyond China, like way beyond right uh, to the, to the point where like, have you, have you burned down, have you burned down your own country to save it? So, so, and this was always the problem. This was always the problem with banning crypto. Um, this has always been the problem with all, all these regimes. It's, it's by the way, it's the problem with, with trying to restrict speech, right? It's just, you, you, what do you have to do? You know, look, the Soviet Union was very focused on restricting speech. You know, they made it a capital offense to own a mimeograph machine, right? Like, you know, how far do you want to push this, right? Um, and so, so anyway, so, and then there's just the practical reality, which is the cat is actually already out of the bag. And then there are basically breakthroughs happening every week now on scaling uh, uh, open source uh, uh, AI models, um, in including running them. Actually, there's another big breakthrough just this week that reduced the memory footprint needed for training by like 16x. 
Um, and so you can train like a, you can train like the Falcon model now on like a single CPU, a single multi-core CPU. And of course, there's an enormous amount of brain power putting into this. It's, this is the frontier of all of math and code and the future of- Cats out of the bag. Cats out of the bag, right? This is going to be a thing where we're going to have to live in this world. And so to, to your point on, is it too late? I think all of this anxiety that people are putting into like all these quote unquote existential risks would be much better transferred into a more practical plan of basically saying, okay, biodefense and terrorist defense and criminal defense and fraud defense, right? And let's let's build the best tool set we've ever had to protect against and to protect against threats that are not just AI driven threats, but also all the other threats that we want to protect against. And how about AI regulation? So the politically correct answer is, well, of course we need regulation. And so, if, you know, if, by the way, many criminal acts you can commit with AI are already criminal. It's already criminal to rob a bank and build a Kill people. Kill people. Try to fraud. Yeah. Like these are all legal. So like number one is like enforce existing law. There's actually a lot of existing laws that apply to all the use cases. To that point, like it is really intriguing that it's, this is just another tool, but the, the damage could cause already covered by a variety of different laws, different agencies. Yeah. So the, the, the point being like a crime committed with AI is still a crime can be prosecuted as a crime. A terrorist act committed with AI is a terrorist act that can be committed, you know, can be prosecuted or otherwise dealt with the way terrorist acts are dealt with. We have, you know, very large machines in government to, to deal with those things. To argue the other side, you have, you have general purpose intelligence you can apply to these things. The threat levels are going to change. The natures of the threats are going to change. Things are going to evolve, right? The world is going to look different. Certainly the, some of these threats are going to magnify way out. And so again, I, I think then therefore using the technology on the, on the defensive side, you know, obviously it makes enormous sense. And so I, I think those would be the two starting points, which is one is, okay, existing laws and regulations, and then step two, build defenses, and then take a look at basically where you are and say, okay, where are the actual gaps around that? And what, what are the legitimate things that you actually want government to do? Now, doing that under the level of sort of hysteria and pressure that exists today generally leads to bad, you know, at least let's say unanticipated outcomes. And so maybe people want to take a beat here and think about it. If that's what we should do, what do you think we will do? Oh, something bad. <laughs> so like, like, uh, like what? Like, let's say 10 years from now, we're talking about what happened. What, what, what's going to happen? Well, you know, look, after the global financial crisis in 2008, right, the big, you know, the big book of the global financial crisis was called Too Big to Fail. One of the big problems was that you had these big banks and they were so-called, it's quote unquote, systemic risk. Um, and so if they failed, they would bring down the entire system. Then they had to get bailed out, which was like the salt, the salt in the wound. And so the, the big conclusion everybody had coming out of that, all the smart people, all the experts, they all said, oh, we need to make sure there are no more too big to fail banks. We need to make sure this doesn't happen again. So they passed this law called Dodd-Frank uh, in 2010, and I, I refer to it as the Dodd-Frank Big Bank Protection Act of 2010, right? Because um, what it did was it made it, the result of that sitting here 13 years later is those too big to fail banks are now much, much larger than they were before. Why are they much, much larger than they were before? It's because Dodd-Frank created a regulatory wall that only big banks can comply with. And so what happened after, after that passed was new bank creation in the U.S. basically went to zero. And then the banking system has been consolidating ever since. And, and, and then this most recent run of bank panics, right, is-, is SVB. Called, right. Yeah. All these, yeah, SVB, and then, you know, First Republic and all these other banks, they're all getting rolled up into, into these too big to fail banks. You know, I think within a decade, we'll be down to 10 total banks in the U.S., is my guess. And then it'll, at some point, consolidate down to three. Like, whatever we thought we wanted from Dodd-Frank, we got the opposite. And, and again, why did that happen? It's this Baptist and bootleggers thing, which is guess who wrote Dodd-Frank? And it was the lawyers who work for the banks, right? Because uh, that's, that's what they do. The, the risk is we're, we're about to enshrine a very small set of companies with, like, ownership of AI for 30 years with all the downside consequences of that. And, and by the way, we will complain about it endlessly because, like, oh, my God, monopolies and oligopolies and cartels. Yeah. And, yeah. and we will have done it to ourselves. Do you think that's what's going to happen? Seriously? Probably. Probably. Okay. Okay, Fair enough. So we just have a few minutes left. So what are you worried about then? Because we've gone through all this sort of spectrum of possibilities. Um, There's some things, but a lot of those things that we talked about are covered under existing laws. What, What does trouble you about AI? 
Yeah. So it's it the things we talked. It's the things we talked about. It's the other one I would just put in is like, look, the, the other kind of missing, the other dark matter in the conversation always is China, um, and, and by that I mean specifically the Chinese Communist Party and kind of their their vision for for global domination. I talk about this also in the paper is that we're not the only player, um, either the U.S. or the West. The Chinese Communist Party has a very specific vision for how AI is to be used. They talk about it publicly. They've been very um, well, yeah. Of, but could you for people who haven't seen that? What is it? Yeah, it's for it's for authoritarian control. A paper just dropped yesterday of uh, of the best. Of, so far, the best Chinese AI uh, that's, that's documented in this paper. It's better than GPT-3, not quite as good as GPT-4, but they're, they're, they're closing in fast. Um, it's a bunch of Chinese universities working with a company called SenseTime, which is one of the companies that runs the cameras that are used to, you know, for population control and to run the concentration camps that the Uyghurs are in and so forth. It's company SenseTime. Uh, it's an arm of the basically Chinese military. They list all the like tests that they run it through to find out how smart it is, and one of the things they do is they they put it through the test for the Chinese you know uh, academic um, you know testing um, batteries that they put students through, and it turns out this AI is like really really good at Marxism and Mao <laughs> right? Like it's literally a communist AI. Yeah, it's what's trained on, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> just like is this yeah. black mirror? Like what yeah. what what the hell is happening? And it's like oh no, they're serious, right? They have they have a method for proliferating technology globally. They've got this program called Belt and Road that basically carries with it a requirement to adopt Chinese technology. Yeah, for, uh, for for the countries that they invest into. For the countries they invest in. And then they've got they've got this company, Huawei, that's been, you know, basically building 5G networks all around the world in a lot of countries. And they're gonna layer and then they're gonna and they're gonna hand a lot of other authoritarian rulers the technology to basically run a perpetual AI enforced authoritarian state. And they're just they're just doing this, right? And they're and they're like taking our IP whenever they want, doing whatever whatever they want with it, and they're just doing it. And so th this is the other you know, this is the other thing. It's just like, okay, what what is the future shape of the world that we're going to live in, and is it going to be a free world or an authoritarian world? And it's a, it's always a little bit strange when these discussions just happen with respect to the U.S. Yeah, because there is this other force out there, and we do have to figure out whether we care about that. Well, well that sounds pretty scary. I, I thought we were going to say AI is going to save the world, and now we're, well. we're uh, <laughs> well. So, so I guess we, we're at sort of a crossroads. If you ask uh, if you ask Xi Jinping, he would tell you that is saving the world. Yeah, right? I see. So you gotta, yeah, yeah. Right. So how do we mitigate that future? Well, so my, what I'm advocating is we need to make sure the we need to make sure the West wins. We need to make sure the West wins. We need to make sure the U.S. wins. Specifically, what that means is we need to make sure that American technology, Western technology, and the American right ideals of freedom and democracy, right, are actually the prevail. And the, and the, the the way this technology rolls out globally is that they carry they carry those ideals with them, um, and not not authoritarianism. This vision needs to win, and our technology needs to win. Um, and this sort of obsession right now in U.S. culture and in Washington, where you know a lot of people in Washington viewed as their mission to just like attack you. U.S. tech companies, you know, it's it's all fine. It's good. It's a fine and good, like fun game for a while to like attack yourself. But like, if there is this other kind of force out there, like you, at some point, there are some big decisions to get made. We can't wait. I I, I wouldn't. Yeah. So that that makes it pretty clear. I mean, waiting leads to one future. Uh, not waiting leads to hopefully a, quite a beautiful one. I think so. Yeah. Okay. Meanwhile, that's a good place to end. Please join me in thanking Mark. Good. 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 <laughs> Thank you, everybody. Thank you for joining BioEats World. BioEats World is hosted and produced by me, Olivia Webb, with the help of the Bio and Health team at A16Z and edited by Phil Hegseth. BioEats World is part of the A16Z podcast network. If you have questions about the episode or want to suggest topics for a future episode, please email bioeatsworld at a16z.com. Last but not least, if you're enjoying BioEats World, please leave us a rating and review wherever you listen to podcasts. The content here is for informational purposes only, should not be taken as legal, business, tax, or investment advice, or be used to evaluate any investment or security, and is not directed at any investors or potential investors in any A16Z fund. 
Please note that A16Z and its affiliates may maintain investments in the companies discussed in this podcast. For more details, including a link to our investments, please see a16z.com slash disclosures. 